And hello again, everybody. Welcome to Phelan and Myers, two for 20. I'm your host, Stephen Julian. With me in the studio is Scott Phelan and Kevin Myers of the Phelan and Myers Wealth Management Group of Janie Montgomery Scott. Scott and Kevin, welcome to the show. Welcome to your show. Well, thank you. Yeah, glad to have you guys here. Okay, so Phelan and Myers Wealth Management Group of Janie Montgomery Scott, we are going to talk about two for 20. We're going to try to keep it to about 20 minutes, and we're going to talk about some great financial topics, financial management, financial wealth management, and helping people get their financial lives in order. Before we get to that, everybody listening wants to know, Scott Phelan, Kevin Myers, Phelan and Myers Wealth Management Group, what do you guys do? So we are uh, based out of Duluth, so right around the corner here from the studio. We work with both individuals as well as businesses and business owners. Um, I think there's a couple things that really kind of distinguish us. One, both Kevin and I are both CFPs. So we understand the not only the investment process, we understand you know tax implications of you know different investments that you can own, tax implications of owning a business. Uh, we understand the estate planning side of it, I think, better than some. And obviously the investment piece as well, which is, you know, the, the most important. And I think the thing that distinguishes us on the investment side is we manage our own money. So if you call us and say, hey, why did you sell Coke and buy Home Depot? We have the rationale and the reasoning behind it. It's not some guy in New York or California or wherever that's managing the portfolios. It's Kevin and I that are making those decisions. And so, you know, those are the two really distinguishing factors. Fantastic. Uh, so you're both CFPs. Not only that, and I know you guys wouldn't say this about yourselves, so I will. You are both part of Forbes Top Advisors list for the last four years. And one of the reasons why you're doing this show is, of course, you do investment management and you do financial planning for people. But this show has grown out of a desire to do a little more educational piece, kind of take what you do with your clients and tell anybody and everybody who will listen to what you guys have to say. So when it comes to education and financial literacy, Kevin, let me ask you first, what do you see as you look at the landscape of, of just the investing public in general? What is the biggest need of financial literacy based on what you do, what, what you guys do? Well, it's kind of a little bit of everything. I think one of the things that's um, surprising is you don't come out of school, either high school or college, a lot of times with just some of the basic financial um, knowledge that you need to be successful. And so Scott and I found that, you know, where we've seen people be successful, they tend to have certain traits. And so that's why we like doing the education piece, because especially if you can catch somebody early and just get them pointed the right direction, it can make a big difference without having to have a lot of, you know, suffering and, and effort trying to get there. Very good. You're talking about kind of the early investment years. And that's certainly one of the topics that you wanted to talk about. In fact, when you guys were talking to me before the show about how you wanted to structure at least the first introductory show that we're doing here today, you kind of wanted to talk about someone's lifespan, just mm -hmm. kind of their lifespan as an investor. Scott and Kevin, you gave me this nice little outline and, and we can kind of break it down into the early investment years, uh, the middle age years and kind of retirement and beyond. So I'm going to get out of your way and you both can enter into this, but take our listeners on a, a quick journey of kind of what that looks like. And if you want, we can do it one at a time. So Kevin, you kind of started the topic by talking about financial literacy in the early and in, early investment years. So what exactly are we talking about? I mean, obviously we're talking about a specific age group, but dig down into that a little bit. What, what does it look like? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, most of our clients, I would say, I mean, if you, if you just 
took a poll, I would say most of our clients are probably 50 plus as an example. Okay. But obviously, you know, they have kids, they have grandkids. And so we want to make this show when pretty much every show applicable to everybody. So if you're listening and you say, you know, this really doesn't apply to me because I'm past my early, early investment years, but it may apply to my grandson or my granddaughter. I'm just going to forward the podcast to them. You know, that's why we want, we want to cover the whole spectrum. But, you know, there's, there's a few things, particularly in the early investment years, you know, maybe somebody goes to college, they get their first job out of college, they're 22, 23 years old. There's some questions that always come up. Okay, where should I start? What should I do? You know, one of the big questions I always get, because I do a lot of 401k plans is, should I do a pre-tax 401k or a Roth 401k? Obviously, the difference being the pre-tax, they get a tax deduction for the money that goes in, but when they pull it out, they pay income tax on it. Conversely, the Roth 401k, they don't get any tax benefit now, but the money they put in plus the growth on it comes out tax-free at some point down the road. So I get that question a lot. I generally tell younger folks, because that's probably their lowest earning years, you know, I'm a lot of the time in favor of doing the Roth 401k. Now, as their income goes up, right, as their income goes up, we want to do the pre-tax because they can use the tax benefit a heck of a lot more probably when they're 45 and 50 than when they're 22, 23, 24 years old. So that's one that's one question I get a lot. The other, you know, many questions we get, but some of the, the, the ones that we get the most are, what else should I be doing? Once I've put in at least the amount of money that the company is matching, what else should I do? And the thing I always tell them is, is, you know, have an emergency fund, have 10, 15, at least $1,000 in an emergency fund, you know, maybe as much as 20 or 25. You know. Do you do you believe very much in, in a dollar amount or is it more based on kind of potential needs as far as like, because I've, I've also heard it as monthly expenses, have three to six months monthly expenses. Is, does it really, I mean, is it really important which one it is? W- what would you guys say to that? Well, yeah, to your point, I mean, it's all relative, right? right? And so I think for somebody who's single, who's just starting out three months is kind of the benchmark that I use. I then say that if you're a young couple, right, where you might have children's or, you know, another spouse, you probably want to aim more for a six months worth of your living expenses. Okay. So emergency fund, we've talked about the four 401k any other things in the early investment years that you're encouraging them with yeah so so the other things you know disability insurance you know and i always encourage folks you know to buy disability insurance on your own can be pretty darn expensive but if you're working for a large employer always buy it through your employer i generally recommend buy as much as you can and i also recommend pay for it on an after-tax basis versus a pre-tax basis because if you pay for it on an after-tax basis if you do become disabled that benefit is tax-free to you versus if you pay on for it on a pre-tax basis then you pay income tax on that benefit and in in these early investment years uh you're wanting to participate in the 401k at least up to the match they can talk about whether it's roth or pre-tax you're talking about an emergency fund and then you're talking about disability insurance it sounds like if i could encapsulate that advice in a couple of sentences you're starting to save for the future but you're really trying to protect yourself more than anything in those early retirement in years. my opinion yeah what i always recommend to folks is, is that you you play defense first mm-hmm. defense being have the emergency fund you know if you're if you're married and certainly if you have children you know have the life insurance have the disability insurance once you've covered all of your bases and taken care of your obligations at that point you know, then you start investing and, and, and frankly, investing as much as you can, because once you have children, as you well know, it becomes much more difficult to invest significant amounts of money. When you're young, if you're married, both of you have income, no kids, 
it's much easier to put larger amounts of money away than once you have kids the, the expenses relate to that. If they go to private school, the expenses relate to that. There to are, that there's well. a lot of people listening to this podcast right now that are nodding their heads vigorously that have children. <laughs> Especially at with the kids. Kevin, you wanted to add something right there. Yeah, well, I think the other thing that you run into on that early phase is um, they may have gotten rid of this, but all the suckers that uh, got a free T-shirt to get a credit card in college, a lot of them come out of college with credit card debt, right? right. And so... But they still have that T-shirt. They do. Yeah, They do. It's got a few holes in it. But one of the things I think people don't also take into account when they look at investing and how to get financially ahead is how to be efficient with your dollars. And so sometimes it doesn't seem fun to pay off credit card debt. But if it's at a 15 to 22% interest rate, that's the same as you earning 15 or 22% on that same dollar. And so I think it's important for people that have debt and kind of to what Scott was saying, you know, when you have that early money pre-kids, right, get out of debt, you know, and that should be one of your number one goals, even before the emergency savings, in my opinion. That's a good defensive tactic as well. Okay, so we've talked about the early investment years. Let's kind of move to the middle age years, the, the middle investing years, as it were. So we've played decent defense. We've got the insurance in place and all that kind of stuff. And you kind of said, maybe when kids come and, and I guess the first question I want to ask is, there's probably no set year of those middle age years where it's kind of a, is it a is it a transition that all of a sudden you look around and go oh i think i'm in my middle age investing <laughs> years or is there a clear demarcation where you know oh i think i'm in it that's a good question because i was thinking about that this morning i was like am i in my i'm 48 am i in my middle investing years or am i getting closer to retirement and gosh, you know, that i, I hope like i'm a, in the middle yeah <laughs> that sounds like a tease for future shows <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I, I I would say probably from 40 to 60, I guess, you know, if you want to use a blunt instrument is, is how I would define the middle of investing years. And things start to change. You know, one, once you get into your 40s, your kids may be getting a little bit closer to college age. So you have 529 plans or you set up 529 plans. One thing that I have noticed is, as it relates to 529 plans is a lot of the time, people will forget about the investments within a 529. They put money in on a monthly basis or they put in a lump sum or the grandparents put in in, in a lump sum and then they forget to manage that money over time. And by the way, the state of Georgia has an excellent 529. And what I normally recommend is is going to an age-based. So pick the year that your child's going to use that, that your child's going to go to or your grandchild, I guess, is going to go to college and go into that fund and what it will do is it'll gradually get more conservative the closer you get to that date, which is really what you want to do mm-hmm. because you can't afford to take any risk as you get as you get closer to that date. Okay. So that's you know, as it relates to 529s, that's one big thing. You have any any thoughts, Kevin? Yeah. So middle age. Yeah. So apart from five twenty nine, what other things should we be doing in those middle investment years? Well, I mean, we also were talking about the marker. I think the size of the belly might be an indicator nice. as well of where, where nice. you're at in your investing I like career. I yeah. like that. <laughs> and you're just going to drop that and then not say anything <laughs> yeah, exactly. else at all. Come on, step. Kevin. I need I need a little more from you for the premiere show of uh, uh, Phelan and Myers two for twenty. You're not just the joke guy over there. So if you've been doing defense in the early investment years, I would imagine one of the biggest things that neither of you said, but I'm going to throw it on the table. This is probably the start of when you start really starting to put more money aside. And Scott, you mentioned five twenty nines, but yep. this is where you're maxing out the four hundred one k. And everybody kind of talks about that. But what other investment steps can people be taking? other than maxing out their 401k and maybe a 529 what are the other things that they should be looking to do so if you're self-employed okay so well i guess let's start with a w-2 employee so if you work for a company i mean you are somewhat limited if you're under age 50 you can put in 
19.5 this year into a retirement plan. If you're 50 or older, you can put in 26.5. And that's per spouse. So if you and your spouse work for a company that has a 401k plan collectively, as an example, if you're 50 or older, that's $52,000 a year. That's a pretty significant amount of money. And for most people, that's about, you know, that's about as much as they can do. But for those that that their income might be a little bit higher and they want to do more than that, you know, you can do a Roth IRA if your income, combined income with your spouse is below about 210,000 approximately. If you're single, I believe that number is about 165,000. So you can do a Roth IRA. So once you've maxed out your retirement plan, your 401k type plan, uh, then you can do a Roth IRA. Beyond that, you, you go into a brokerage account, which is really the way I describe it to people is it's kind of like a checking account with investments in it. You know, you have access to it, liquidity, obviously at market risk, but it's kind of like a checking account with investments. And if you've been building an emergency fund and playing defense early, then there probably comes a point where you're like, okay, I think they told me six months. And as I've gotten older, maybe I feel more comfortable with 12 months or 50,000. But then they start going, I would imagine you're in a good place. You might be in that. You look at your belly, as Kevin said, and you might also look at your bank account and go, it's getting a little fat too. I, I got more i got way more than i could ever need for the typical emergency that might be a good indicator that you're in those middle investment years i like that checking account with investments inside of it that's a that's a good description so let's stop there because i want to make sure and get to this last if we're going to try to keep it phelan and myers two for 20 then i want to try to get to the third section before we end this particular show retirement and beyond if I'm looking at the belly for middle age years, maybe I'm looking at my hairline for the retirement. I don't know. I, that's a, you got anything there, Kevin? You want <laughs> daily to prescriptions. If you're at the daily <laughs> prescription rate, you've probably if hit you the have, later phase. Yeah, if you have an M through M-T-W-T-H-F <laughs> yeah. and then two S's, yeah, you might be in the... Okay, so what are we? What are the main things in, in investing during those retirement years and beyond? Okay, so, so a couple of the biggest questions that I get are, one, if I've got a lump sum, for example, let's say I go to retire and I've got, pick a number, a million dollars. Okay. How much can I take off of that lump sum and feel good that I'm not taking too much? What I tell clients is, and really what I tell everybody is, is you can take up to 5%, in my opinion. I'm more comfortable with four, but certainly no more than five and feel comfortable that you're, you know, you, you'll be okay through retirement. But really, there, there's a few things to consider. One is, and, and by the way, I love for clients to go into retirement being debt-free. Okay, it just the peace of mind of having no debt going into retirement, I think, is just fantastic. But let's say everything works out perfectly. You're debt-free going into retirement. You and your spouse have combined Social Security of $4,000 a month. You figure out what your expenses are. Because a lot of time when we ask folks, hey, what are your expenses? They say, well, geez, I don't really know. I've never done a budget before, but let me find out. So as an example, let's say your expenses are $6,000 a month. Social Security coming in at $4,000 a month, you have a $2,000 a month deficit shortfall. You take a look at that lump sum of money. And again, this is kind of a blunt instrument. My preference is to, to come in, let's take a look at it. Let's do a retirement income analysis, shoot it up on the big screen and feel comfortable that the numbers are going to work out. But if you figure 4% off of a million dollars, that's $45,000 a year, which is what, 33, 33 a month. And you have a $2,000 a month deficit, you're probably going to be in pretty good shape. Mm -hmm. Again, I think you need to get into the numbers a little more specifically, but as a blunt tool, that's kind of how we do it. 
And when you're talking about that million, that million can come from that checking account with investments. It can come from the 401k that they've been saving, which, by the way, maybe when they were younger, they started as Roth based on maybe advice they got from you directly. And then as they age, there's some of it that's that's uh, not Roth. That's more was put in pre-tax and they'll have to pay. So that's part of what you guys do as a CFP is, is try to figure out, OK, where are we going to get this from? Because maybe if I don't need to max it all out on withdrawals, some of the some of the expertise you guys bring to the table is where do we draw that from? Do we draw it? Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Well, and I think we were talking a little bit in, I think, the mid-age about uh, using brokerage accounts. I think sometimes people always want to be in a tax-advantaged account. Mm -hmm. And Roths, I think, are are definitely good ones. But having a brokerage account also helps us for in retirement. One of the biggest headaches that people deal with is managing their tax bracket, right? And so if you're pulling everything out of a traditional IRA or a traditional 401k previously, everything is going to be driven towards your earned income for that year. And so to have some brokerage account that you can balance that with or some Roth money to keep your taxes down is a, is a good thing too. Let me ask you guys a couple questions. Uh, and and, and I'm, I believe that as this show continues and as people listen to other shows, we're going to stay on some of those topics of middle age and early investment years and retirement and beyond type years. We're going we're gonna to spend some time on those and dig a little deeper, correct? Correct. You've done a fantastic job in about 15 minutes of kind of giving a great overview. Let me rapid fire you some questions real quick and, and maybe try to get you guys sweating a little bit at the table. How often do you think typical investment client, how often do you want to try to meet with your clients? What, what do you think? And I know everybody's different, but give me a good, give me a good uh, ballpark range of how often you want to talk to or meet with the client. In my opinion, at least a couple times a year. Now, now, if, if somebody, for example, selling a business, you know, leading up to that sale, I mean, there's going to be multiple sure. meetings. There's going to be meetings with the, the attorney that's going to do the transaction. There's going to be meetings with the CPA. So an outlying event like that obviously will lead to more meetings. But generally speaking, a couple times a year. In general, do you believe it's good for your investment clients to talk to you specifically about the investments? Is that part of what you're trying to do? Is the Is the goal of every meeting, or at least those twice a year meetings, you want to go over the goals, you want to go over the picture of where they're at, and I mean, kind of lay out a, a good agenda for a good meeting with a client from, from your end of the table. When I meet with a client, initially, when we when we get together, if somebody's referred to us in a, as an example, I've got a questionnaire that I go through with that client, and I'll identify holes in their financial plan. And so, a lot of the time, we can't fix all those holes in the first six months or a year, what have you. It may be we need to meet with the estate attorney and get your will redone. It may be we need to find a new CPA. Maybe we need to help you decrease your tax liability. And so it's kind of an ongoing process. So when I meet with a client, I review all of our prior notes, and I have an agenda for that meeting. Now, sometimes that agenda will include the investments, but frankly, the vast majority of our clients say, hey, the reason I hired you is to manage my money. You don't need to tell me everything you're doing. Okay. If at the end of the day, the results aren't very good. We better talk about it. We better talk about it. And this is the most capitalistic business there is. So if if they're not happy with it, they go somewhere else. But so most of those meetings are, are more financial planning related than investment related. And as long as we're handling the investment side of it, 
I think that's what most clients want, actually. And I love the way you laid that out, that you've you're set up some goals, and then as they meet with you over and over again, you can go, we've closed this hole, we've, we've done better here, we still need to do these things, we've started this, but we need to circle back to it and, and, and revisit it. So that is what a plan looks like, I believe. So well done, gentlemen. The last question I want to ask you is, when someone starts a relationship with you guys, how long is the first meeting typically? What what does somebody need to expect when they start a relationship with Phelan and Myers Wealth Management Group? A lot of it's how prepared they are on the front end, but there's a lot of data gathering and information um, that's kind of brought in on the first meeting. So I would say usually at least an hour for us to get a good, clean understanding of sort of where they're at and then some next steps on you know what we might need otherwise. I know a little bit of inside information about your business, and I know you're not allowed to say the word guarantee, so I'll say it for you. I can guarantee anyone listening to this podcast right now probably wants to take a chance and sit down and have an hour conversation with you and talk about where they're at and where they're going. So for those people who are listening to the very first episode of Phelan and Myers 2 for 20, how do they get in touch with you guys? They can call us directly. My my direct number is 678-448-4841. Does Kevin give his direct number? Same thing, but 42. Same thing, but 42. That's an interesting yeah. phone number. Yeah. And uh, they can also search Phelan and Myers Wealth Management Group. Exactly. Uh, and, they're, and you're part of Janie Montgomery, Scott. Yep. Phelan is spelled P-H-E-L-A-N for those people who want to go through the website. Also on your website, there's a great contact us form. You can ask to be contacted by email or by phone. But... Scott and Kevin both gave you their phone number, so you can call them directly. Scott Phelan, Kevin Myers, thank you so much, first of all, for giving me the honor of hosting this program for you guys. You both, I've known you guys for quite a while, and uh, I was honored that you would ask me to uh, be the host of this show. Happy to dig into these topics and many others on future programs of Phelan and Myers 20 for 20. But since it's your show, I will get out of the way in case you want to drop one little one-liner at the end or make fun of me before we close the show. I'll use the same joke I used last time I was on the air with you. You have a face for radio. Thank you very much, and you owe me a dollar. (laughs) Thank you very much. So for Kevin Myers and for Scott Phelan, this is your host, Stephen Julian, saying we'll catch you next time on Phelan and Myers 2 for 20.